Keeping patients safe should be the key aim at the heart of any healthcare system, including the NHS. Yet we know that every single day patients come to avoidable harm, and although efforts are always made to improve patient safety, we also have to consider the factors which affect the people providing that care and how it can impact the patient, the systems we work in, and ourselves as clinicians. This month we're talking about human factors. Hopefully this podcast doesn't take up too much bandwidth. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hi, and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh. And my name's Alex. And this month we're talking about human factors. And this is actually a topic that one of our listeners suggested that they thought would be good to talk about. And I completely agree. It comes quite timely for me. I've just done my uh, CRM crew resource management training through work. And it definitely makes you think about the non-technical aspects of the job that we do and how mistakes and errors occur and how we can be better at our jobs without actually being better clinically at them. And this is something that's taken real inroads in healthcare in recent years and is definitely something that most, if not all, of the listeners will have had some involvement with or education uh, around to some degree. Okay, so let's get started. Alex, do you want to start us off by talking about exactly what human factors is? So without perhaps being 100% on what what it really means, most people are vaguely aware that human factors is to do with mistakes and and perhaps uh, errors in human thinking. And the names Elaine and Martin Bromley are probably not too far uh, from people's minds when we talk about this subject. The Clinical Human Factors Group, which is the group set up by Martin Bromley, defines human factors as organizational, individual, environmental, and job characteristics that influence behaviors in ways that can impact safety. And patient harm caused by preventable errors are commonly the result of multiple human factors rather than one single error by an individual. And those errors can be described as active or latent. So they may be active in terms of things happening on the job or at the scene or latent things, which are more to do with our inherent biases and things that we perhaps don't consciously recognize. And I think most people are aware that this comes from the aviation world. Even Martin Bromley himself was an aircraft captain, and that's where his insight into the case affecting his wife came from. And so Human Factors comes from an area of aviation called CRM, Crew Resource Management, which developed, I guess, in the late 60s, early 70s, as aircraft got safer and less likely to fall apart, they realised that aviation accidents were still happening. And on investigation of those, it turns out 80% of aviation accidents were as a result of some human error as opposed to uh, mechanical problems going wrong. So whilst there were technical advances making the aircraft safer, uh, which of course still happens, they realised that there were much greater payoffs and much greater wins that could come from making humans safer and looking at the issues that we cause and the part that we have to play in aviation accidents. And something that embodies this notion is the shell principle. So this was developed in 1972, and it provides a focus on how we, the central liveware, interact with the many systems that we come across in the process of doing our job. Now, this applies to the aviation industry, but it absolutely applies to us. So shell encompasses software, so the technology that we use, hardware, so the physical mechanics of the things that we use, our ambulances, our traction splints, things like that. Environment, clearly the area in which we operate in and all of the interplay that comes with working in the pre-hospital arena other liveware so other humans that we interact with and then the final l is the central liveware and that's us and the shell principle and the approach to crm is all about how we as the central liveware interact with all of these elements and the wider crm principle 
obviously we're talking about human factors in this podcast, but the wider CRM principle is accepting how we integrate with the various systems that are at play. So it's not only us, it's not only our behaviours, it's that of the systems that we work in, the cultures, the policies, the limitations of hardware. So an example in the aviation world of how this interacts uh, with all of that is a training document from 1952. And an excerpt from this training document says that junior pilots should not at all correct mistakes of senior captains. And clearly we can all appreciate how that is an absolute red flag for error and mistakes, uh, potentially with catastrophic consequences. So this was slowly integrated into healthcare over recent years. The major catalyst for this in the UK was the now infamous Elaine Bromley case that you've already mentioned, Alex. But it's definitely been making other inroads into healthcare. When we look at the root cause analysis of other patient safety incidents, we're looking at the human factors that are at play. Now, I wasn't particularly familiar with the shell model, but looking at the the sort of diagram um, of the concept that I've got in front of me, what what strikes me is that this is uh, very similar in presentation to the Jessup joint decision making model. And I think that's a good example of how these things, the different uh, live wire, the different players and factors involved, uh, different technology, different environments, software, and how we interact with each other as organizations and individuals. I think that's a really good example of that. This approach and these kind of things are being all being considered when we think about patient safety and how we can improve the patient experience and how we can make healthcare safer for patients. Yeah, and I think that raises a, a quite an important question. And that question is, is patient safety really that big of a problem? Because we talk about it a lot. And is it a big problem in the UK? Well, the UK performs slightly better than OECD, and that's the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. So the OECD average, we are slightly better in preventable and treatable deaths, but we are in the bottom half of the table. And that is a an organization that looks at data from uh, a selection of countries worldwide. And we are in the bottom half of that table. Now, to reach the top 10 of that table, we would need to achieve in the UK 12,675 fewer deaths due to treatable causes every year. And the Clinical Human Factors Group estimate that every year in the NHS, there are around 11,000 needless deaths. And, and Josh, I've got, a, I've got a question for you. How many medicine errors do you think happen in England each year? Oh, I wouldn't even know where to begin with estimating that. I'd have no idea. I would assume the tens of millions or something like that. Yeah, so the estimated figure in England alone, and I I assume, uh, sorry, Wales, but I assume this is England and Wales, uh, as these things usually are, but not Scotland. Uh, so, So just the two countries. It is estimated that 237 million medication errors are made every year which contribute to more than 1700 deaths and that is from uh, the national state of patient safety report 2022 so that is relatively recent so i think in answer to the question is patient safety really that big of a problem yes it is it, it is a big problem it is a factor in uk practice and it is something that we can improve and something that we do need to improve and I've, I've got a little quote here from the health and safety executive. If you think safety is expensive, try having an accident. It's a good quote, that, isn't it? I think it's an important thing to remember and bear in mind. Obviously, my role is the interplay of aviation and healthcare. And that's something that's at the bottom of our safety manager's uh, email signatures, which is quite good at getting you to center it and keep safety uh, in your mind and keep it at the center of everything that, that you're doing. So we're going to talk about some human factors issues and we're going to talk about some of the things that in our practice, some, some of the human factors uh, errors that we've made or we've seen. And I think a nice way to do this is to apply it to a case study. So this is a fictional case study 
but it's based upon a number of mistakes, isn't it, Alex, that you and I have made in our practice uh, or that we've seen in our practice and has given us cause for reflection. And a reasonable amount of this comes from our newly qualified paramedic years. And we know that we've got quite a few uh, listeners that are newly qualified or in that NQP phase. And so we just thought it would be helpful to share some of the issues and errors and be open with you about some of the errors that we've made and what we learnt moving forward uh, from those instances. Yeah, this is sort of uh, amalgamated, um, not necessarily worst case scenario, but it's a lot of uh, things that we have uh, experienced and seen, as you say, particularly within our own transition to practice period. So let me let me read out the uh, the case that we've got here for you. Put on your best narration voice and listeners pull a blanket up, get comfy in bed and listen to story time with Alex. Don't get too comfy because you, uh, I don't want <laughs> yeah. to put people to sleep. Yeah, if you're listening in the car, don't get too comfy. <laughs> but the significant <laughs> yeah, amount of our listeners that we know have us as a bedtime treat. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, this scenario could become real life. So you're en route to a two-vehicle RTC on a fast-flowing A road, which is a 50 to 60 mile an hour limit. You, as the paramedic, arrive first on scene with a brand new ECA. Now, they've mentioned to you, en route that they haven't been to an, a big RTC before and they haven't really seen very much trauma. And as you're getting close to the job, you realise and you think to yourself, actually, neither have I. As you pull up to the scene, you realise you're the first ambulance or medical resource on scene. Two fire pumps are at the scene and firefighters are rendering initial aid to people still in their cars. You can see that there's five cars involved. Two have minor cosmetic damage with all occupants out and standing by the roadside. The third car is partially in a ditch at the side of the road. Most of the bonnet is buried in the tree line, but there is a driver clearly trapped in the driver's seat. Car four and five are badly damaged. They've collided head on with a 75% overlap and there's significant intrusion into the survival spaces and two occupants in each car. You feel your heart rate elevate. This is not the two-car RTC that you prepared yourself for. As you step out of the cab, you're greeted with the smell of fuel on the floor, the noise of running engines, the cracking of glass, and fire and rescue are beginning to cut and extricate the casualties from the vehicles. Approaching the scene, you put on your high-vis jacket and begin to walk to the side door to get your grab bag. As soon as you grab your response bag, the fire service scene commander is right next to you trying to give you a detailed handover of what they believe's happened and the clinical situation as they understand it for each patient on the scene 30 seconds into that handover your radio goes off it's control they want an update you've asked them to stand by and no sooner have you said those words that you get a second call from the special resources hems desk they want to know if the critical care team are required as hems are lifting and they would also like an update George, have you gone to sleep? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, I was coming in. I just had to um, unmute my mic. I, I just had to wipe the sleep away from my eyes. It was lovely. It was like one of those calming Zen meditation apps. So I think this provides a useful moment to discuss some of the human factors at play here. And you'll notice that we haven't even got anywhere near a patient yet. Yeah, because that's the thing, isn't it? The human factors are in play from the moment we wake up in the morning we go to work we get in the cab of the vehicle and then the job comes down and all of those things the day that we've had so far and and every part of that step has an impact here in terms of human factors and decision making before mm. we've even got to the patient we, we talk about our zero point survey sometimes don't we so run through your whole mnemonic so am i hungry am i angry am i lonely am i tired have i had a fight with my missus coming out the door all of this is going to influence the level of care that we can provide to our patients and that's reminded me alex um i saw a tweet this morning from a doctor who it, it was in a mentorship thread but he said that whenever he sees a junior colleague or someone he's mentoring underperforming clinically the first question that he asks them is is everything okay at home? 
And the example that he gave in this tweet was his colleague who'd maybe uh, not been quite as on it as as normally. Uh, he'd recently had a family member that had been diagnosed with cancer and he'd been holding that internally and it'd been affecting him clinically and affecting his ability to to process things. So we should definitely bear in mind all of these other things that have happened before we come into work that will influence our ability to give quality clinical care. We all want to be good clinicians and, and good paramedics and do the right thing for the patient, but we are human at the end of the day, aren't we? Or at least most of us are. Um, and <laughs> yeah, well, ma- managers aside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we get to the patient, there are other things, uh, there's, there's other types of responses, aren't there, that can happen in, in that moment. And so this is what I wanted to talk about the startle and surprise type response. So this is definitely something that resonated with me and affected me, particularly as an NQP, but to be honest, I'd be lying if I said it still didn't have a part to play after a number of years uh, registered. And this is that rocking up on scene and the reality not equaling the expectation. So you've mentally prepared yourself for one thing and it's a hell of a lot worse by the time that you get there. And this is something that we talk about in aviation quite a bit which is the startle response and the surprise response. So let's talk about startle. Startle is a sympathetic response from external stimuli. So this is the fight and flight response, sometimes termed the freeze response. It's a sympathetic response to that oh crap moment. And it's important to recognise this and bear this in mind because it has a number of influences over us. So the sympathetic response sometimes called the amygdala hijack restricts our ability to analytically think it activates our lizard brain which is the deal with immediate threats part of our brain and our ability to access higher functions of our brain is compromised for a a period of time so we know this in studies it's been shown that between eight and ten seconds uh, for about eight or ten seconds our ability to perform fine motor tasks are completely affected and completely reduced by this startle response. I also get the same uh, lizard brain effect around four o'clock in the morning on night shifts. (laughs) I think you're mostly in lizard brain, aren't you? That's just default for you. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) This can be activated by any concerning stimuli that presents a, uh, a threat to us. So the classic would be you're coming along on blue lights and someone pulls out in front of you and activates that startle response. And that's not what causes the crash, but the impact on your analytical thinking and your ability to do fine motor tasks means that you can have a crash some distance down the road as a result of that startle response. And I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that you may have a startle response as soon as you're stepping out of that ambulance. If you're being jumped on by this fire service manager who's trying to give you a handover, you're not going to be taking any of that in. And it's all missed information. The surprise response is probably something that comes more into play in this particular situation. So again, it's a response to an unexpected event. It's less dramatic, but it can last longer than startle. And so as you might imagine, if we're looking at human factors here and we're looking at research about those human factors and how we can understand more about this, if there's none in the healthcare setting, which there isn't, a good place to start would be the aviation sector. And EASA, the European Aviation Safety Agency, have a massive document looking at examining the startle and surprise response. And so they define this as a physiological response to surprise, causing the attentional system to become more focused, but it impairs working memory. And whilst this focus may help in evaluating this situation, particularly in dangerous situations, and it can be useful when you have to make choices quickly, people tend to focus on the more salient information, which may not be the most important information in that given moment. And they also remark that this combination of focused attention with impaired working memory can cause problems for the person experiencing surprise in their main tasks. And I'm sure we've all experienced this, you know, when you go to those first cardiac arrests, when you're qualified, then your adrenaline's going, you kind of flick into this automatic mode. And 20 minutes later, you can't really remember what you've done in what order. You can't remember the intricacies, but the adrenaline's open, the airway's been managed. 
your grab bag's been trashed and you're not quite sure how it all ended up like that. That's an impact of this surprise response. This impact on your working memory will affect your ability to process and analytically review information. And that will put you at greater risk of making mistakes. Oh, that's quite interesting. I've not really heard much about the EASA research. So that's that's not um, I mean, it, it's stuff that I recognize. I've not, I've not heard it specifically uh, in this context, but it, it's things that I sort of recognize in myself in my own responses. And I, I guess my question is, that's all, it's all well and good to understand it, but, but what, what do we do about it? That's the key thing. Yeah, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? And actually, you've hit the nail on the head or you've hit one of the key things that come out. Uh, of a lot of the things that talk about startling surprise and that's recognizing it in yourself and a lot of what it says as I'll come on to explain later it's very difficult to know what to do about this but if you can recognize when it's happened and reflect on what it feels like when we're startled or when we're surprised that's probably half the battle is to is to recognize it when you're compromised and then put in place any of the mitigating factors that you can to make that incident run to completion as safely as possible. So the EASA document is essentially 140 pages of exploring that exact question, you know, what what is this thing and what can we do about it? And they accept that this is really, really difficult to drill for, probably impossible to drill for, because startled by its very nature is a physiological response and some people will be more sensitive to it than others. So I'm probably one of these people that EASA describes as a hyper startler. So whenever our job phone at work goes off, I jump out of my skin. Uh, I'm quite a jumpy person generally. And before you say it, it's not a sign that I've got a guilty conscience, Alex. But some people are just more sensitive to startle uh, and surprise than others. I, to be honest, I didn't think you had a conscience at all. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we'll find it one day. And the other thing to bear in mind, although it isn't really well explored in healthcare, probably for us, it is shorter lived and it has possibly less of an issue in our world than it does in the aviation world where, you know, your your startle responses to your engines shutting off and if you do the wrong thing, you'll kill yourself and everyone on board. Um, but clearly there is risk in our world as well. And as I say, by its very nature, it's really difficult to train for this because the whole point of a surprise response is when expectation doesn't equal reality. Now, you can't really sim for that. You can do a simulation where your patient acutely deteriorates in front of you, but you will never have a true physiological surprise response because it's not a real person and a lot of the time we go into the sim expecting bad things to happen don't we you know I, I remember it my oskis you'd be managing a patient with you know some mild difficulty of breathing and you're waiting for them for, to deteriorate because the moment that they arrest that's where the marks start and you're prepped for this whereas the the rest of the time you're sat twiddling your fingers waiting for what's wrong to reveal itself and them to deteriorate and, and you don't get a proper resp startle response yeah, I have absolutely, absolutely seen this. And it's something that I say to people a lot, you know, we, we need to make if, if we're going to do simulation, we need to make it high fidelity, so that we get as close as possible to that realistic experience as we can. If you don't sim properly, exactly what you were just saying, Josh, if you don't sim properly, you do not get that real experience, you don't get the real startle. And you go into, for example, an ALS OSCE, knowing that you are going to be facing an ALS. Um, so yeah, I'm a big, as are you, I know we're both big advocates of realism and, and of high fidelity simulation. It's never going to be the real world, but you can make it much more useful than kneeling next to, an an, uh, um, kneeling next to a mannequin and talking through what you would do. High realism sim is useful, particularly for managing uh, and, and getting au fait with technical skills and getting really good with your technical skills. And again, the EASA document says people that are competent and can rely on mental heuristics that we'll come on to talk about a bit later will perform better. 
But even that, even really high fidelity sim, probably can't get you to the point where you're truly startled or really surprised because, you know, 90% of our work, we're not expecting an issue. It's the same with pilots. The majority of the time, pilots get in a plane not expecting an issue. So, you know, that one in a thousand time where something does flag up and it's, and it's a problem, it really does grab you. So you said, what can we do? Well, as I said, knowing and reflecting on what it feels like to be surprised or startled is a good start. And again, the EASA safety document that reviewed it, uh, they reviewed near misses and accidents uh, of real aviation uh, situations. And they found that those who were more experienced and had good judgment that they could rely on uh, performed better and recovered better from these instances than, than perhaps those in their more junior years. But that doesn't really help. It doesn't really answer the so question, you, does it? So, so are, you, are, you, are you just saying then that the key is to is to be better and to be more experienced? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying be better just be better there is some useful stuff in uh, in this document so they looked at something called the mental upset concept and came up with a number of tools and things that we can do to one control the physiological response and the psychological response of startle and surprise two how we can be fail safe so so not to make things worse because one of the things that they found um is is when something startling happens obviously the best thing to do is the correct course of action the second best thing to do was do nothing because then you're not making the situation worse and clearly the worst thing to do and and what often happens because we've activated this lizard brain and it's our fight or flight and we do something we've got an impulse to do something and they found that most people actually end up doing the wrong thing and that, that, that sounds obvious doesn't it just don't do the wrong thing but this mental upset concept is designed to give some tools to help not make things worse so accept that sometimes doing nothing while we get over this initial physiological response to uh to, to to the unexpected event is the best thing to do and then we need to work out how we integrate with the correct sop or process to get us back on track again and we will come back to talk about that but i think quite a lot of this ties in quite nicely with bandwidth so why don't we talk about uh quickly mental bandwidth and then we can talk about the responses that we can take to both of those eventualities yeah because the, the two things are um they're in the same realm aren't they but they are they are different the 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 surprise and um surprise and startle reaction is is sort of uncontrollable whereas bandwidth well Bandwidth is it's the moment to moment amount of cognitive capacity and executive function that we have available as an individual. And uh, you know me, I love a quote. I've got a I've got a nice quote here from Piapelli. Um we assume that we have full agency over our choices, that they are carefully constructed results of our experience and deliberation. But that assumption is incorrect because it does not factor in the impact that our state of mind has on the choices we make. It requires bandwidth to override our built-in cognitive biases and engage in rational thinking. And now clearly when we turn up at the scene of something like the scenario that we're talking about, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to process and deal with during those first few seconds and moments uh, and even the first few minutes. And a significant amount of mental bandwidth is likely to have been used already uh, just in developing an approach to the situation. There's the need to provide updates and requests from control and, and um, the need to request further resources and provide updates to specialist resources and monitor the changes in what is by its very nature a very dynamic situation. When our bandwidth is fully utilized when when we have no more um executive function left you'll find that there are issues with memory and there's also issues with information processing and sounds and movement also occupy unconscious bandwidth so think about the example of turning the radio down to help you see the numbers better when you find when you find an address right do you, you do that josh every single time without fail i literally cannot see uh addresses if the radio is playing 
I mean, the fact that you're overhead in a helicopter is possibly something. <laughs> but, 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 but that's the problem. <laughs> but we all do it, don't we? we? We all drive past and we go, hang on a minute, yeah. I need to turn this down yeah. so I can think better. And, and it's because that, um, those sounds and those things going on are occupying unconscious bandwidth and sometimes we need to reduce those distractions um, that and it's highly unprofessional to uh, turn up to a cardiac arrest with tub thumping playing on full volume out of the ambulance speakers <laughs> Jumba Wumba, what a what a reference that's going to be lost on a, on uh, a lot of people i think that's uh, a, an insight into the uh, playlists go and listen to it right now pause the podcast and go and listen to it so in the scenario that we have proposed, um, you're immediately met by an officer from the, from the fire service who's trying to give you a vast amount of information all at once while you've got all these other distractions going on. And we have to think, you know, can that all be absorbed? Is it all pertinent information? And the brain's having to do even more work to filter this out and select the most important information. And we already know that when bandwidth is fully utilized, there is going to be issues with memory and with information processing, and that's going to make this process even more difficult. So the question is then, in terms of bandwidth occupation and startle and surprise reactions, what do we do about it and one of the things that we have already sort of touched on when we're talking about high fidelity simulation is something called stress inoculation exposure to stressful events that aren't devastating but are challenging enough to provoke an emotional instigation and a degree of cognitive processing can nurture that ability to cope with subsequent stress that's the idea behind stress inoculation in the same sense that a vaccination provides you with the antibodies to to fight um a pathogen the idea that we inoculate ourselves to to an initial degree of stress is 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 really what we're kind of talking about when we talk about stress inoculation and that is where high fidelity simulation and and exposure um, come into come into it because th there is something to be said for a degree of experience, but it's not all about experience. Sometimes we can we can achieve some of the same results with stress inoculation, and that is why OSCEs and practice and practice and practice is so important. Pur purposeful practice as well, like like you say, not doing the running through the motions kind of practice. Which, if you're trying to learn an algorithm, okay, lower fidelity might be useful. But this kind of stress inoculation to really make you better, having a real purpose to make you better at these incidents, you need to be doing everything you can to make it as realistic as possible. So you need to be using kit bags that are as close to what you're used to. You need to be actually performing skills and going through the motions. And, you know, if something screws up, then you do it again, because that adds to this stress inoculation and this training. It's like my dad always used to say, train hard, fight easy. You know, if you do it properly uh, in this sim lab, then it will pay dividends when it comes to doing this in real life. And you've got all of these other complexities like startle and surprise and the sympathetic response going that you can't really emulate in the sim lab. Well, you know, if you've got the mental heuristics and the technical skills down as best that you can, it frees up mental bandwidth to support you when it gets really difficult yeah no absolutely I, I i love that quote from your dad and um I, another one i like is that you you don't rise to the occasion you sink to your level of training and one thing that you've mentioned to me before josh is is something called relax observe confirm so so what's tell me about that what 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 is relax observe confirm yeah so this is what came out of the EASA document I was talking about before. As I said, the startle and surprise response is very difficult to train for. So what they've done is they've come up with a number of actions that we can take when we recognize it in ourselves, And that's why it's important to reflect when it's happened and try and be mindful of what that feels like within ourselves. And the first step is to relax. So the first part of this, they say, is to try and take some physical distance. Now, in the aviation world, 
They suggest actually pushing your head back into the head restraint, gaining even a couple of centimetres between you and the alarming control panel. Mentally really does help. And putting that into the perspective of this scene, it's ensuring that we put ourselves in a position on scene that keeps us distance from all of that activity and allows us to absorb it without rushing in. So keep yourself away from the hubbub of the scene for the initial stages of your approach to it. Don't rush straight in. Yeah, when I first became a, a sort of scene commander, um, I was given some really good advice by uh, by a chap who's who's actually now my boss. But he he told me when you arrive on scene especially in the second person on scene or or in the position of of perhaps taking a lead or or a, a, an operational overview don't immediately put gloves on because that will draw you into the scene and that's part of that taking physical distance and another another sort of example of that is um Dr John Hines uh talked in one of his uh, in one of his seminal lectures um about uh, his experience attending serious motorcycle crashes uh, during races and the first thing he would do is is stand on the tr- on the track uh looking around at the scene and, and and people would look at him and go the doctor's here why is he not doing anything and it's because he's taking in the scene and he's looking for all of those things which he um trying to stop himself getting drawn in and i think those are two really good examples of that that aspect of taking a taking a distance and why why that can be helpful so take physical distance. The second thing that they suggest in response to the surprise or startle response is to take a deep breath. Now, this sounds really obvious, doesn't it? But this is about that first goal of controlling the physical response to startle and surprise. And if you rush in with a really high heart rate and a really high sympathetic response going, then you are only going to potentiate this. So taking a few seconds to get yourself under control is really useful. So the next bit is relax the tension in your body. So as soon as you have a startle or surprise response, uh, you're going to tense up a little bit. And again, be consciously aware of this and make a physical conscious attempt to relax yourself and loosen up. If you go in with tension in your body, it's going to impede your phone weight control. And again, it's just going to potentiate it. So this is all about getting on top of that physical response that you've had as a result of the unexpected event to help you uh, and to give you the best chance to think clearly in the coming minutes. The final step of this relax phase is that you need to check on your colleagues. So what you need to do is you need to align cognitively with them because they've also had this surprise response. They've had the exact same as you. They thought they were going to one thing and now it's turned out to be slightly different. So they're probably having or, p- or potentially having a similar response. Now, they may be responding differently to you, but ultimately we need to be starting our patient care on the same page. So we need to get on that same page before we start. So the literature suggests doing this by asking an open question. They suggest you use the person's name because that prevents uh, cognitive tunneling. So it's called the the cocktail party effect. If there's lots of people around you chatting and there's lots of stuff going on, you can pick your name up across the room if people are talking about you, can't you? And it's 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 a phenomenon that occurs so people can immediately detect words of importance. So their own name will be picked out of uh, all of the varying hyperstimulation that's going on at the scene. So, you know, Alex, how are you doing? And I need to pay attention to that answer. So not only listening to what you say, but looking at your nonverbal stimuli, uh, you might be absolutely fine. But in this example, this is a brand new ECA who's never been to an RCC before. And this is possibly the, uh, the, the biggest RTC that they're going to have been to potentially in their career you might just need to give them a simple task so that they can go and get their head together so you know mate just just take five seconds in the back of the truck um get yourself sorted out and then just bring me the scoop in the trolley when you're when you're ready and that gives them time to get their head together get over this startling surprise response again you know if they're a junior member of staff they may need some more time to do that and you can also do that for yourself, can't you? It doesn't just have to be for your colleagues, but if you if you start to recognise this in yourself, you can also say, right, I I just need a minute. 
Exactly. Remember, this is all about taking a few seconds or minutes now to make sure that you perform really well over the coming 60 to 90 minutes. And again, doing this properly will pay dividends. There's a reason that we're spending this long talking about this part of the scene, and we haven't even got to the patient yet. The second step is to observe. So when we get to scene and when we've got this fight or flight response going on, when we've got this surprise response going on, we've got the absolute compulsion to do something. It's that lizard brain that wants to do something. And running in without the ability to cognitively analyse will just result in us doing safe and comfortable actions because that's what we resort to when we're maxed out and our bandwidth is maximally taken up. People will resort to safe and comfortable actions. I see this a lot in my role now, turning up often second or third on scene behind the primary response. And I think we should almost put it in the literature as something like the paramedic startle response, because the amount of people that I see gaining access and it gets so focused on gaining access because it is a safe task for them to do. And no one can ask them to do something whilst they're doing that. They're busy. They're occupied for a few minutes and they're essentially just giving themselves a few minutes to sort their stuff out and, and get over this surprise and startle response. But the amount of people that then resort to doing IV access when there's probably more meaningful uh, actions that could have taken a primary response because, you know, we might not use that IV access for another 20 minutes. And, and I think that's an example of a physical manifestation of this surprise and startle response. So by not rushing in and taking a step back, as you've said, Alex, positioning yourself, positioning yourself so that we can take a view of the bigger picture and take an active search on for information that's helpful to us to help us get a grasp of the situation is probably a good place to, good place to be. Uh, and this will help prevent hasty decision-making, help prevent uh, us performing incorrect or irreversible actions and will provide a conscious step to us to hold back and prevent us from doing what is natural to that lizard brain, which is action, taking some form of action because it gives the lizard brain, you know, gives us a, a, a sense of control, a false sense of control. One of my colleagues does this really, really nicely, and I'm trying to introduce it into my practice. Uh, as we're walking to the scene, he will narrate the scene. He'll point out really obvious things, but he'll direct your attention and narrate our way into the scene. And it really, really helps with this observational stage of approaching. Is it, is it, is it like, in a world where... <laughs> 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 the, the final stage to... The, what the literature recommends uh, to helping combat this is to confirm with our colleagues a shared mental model and narrate a plan of action. So in this instance, it might be turning to your ECA and saying, all right, I'm going to go to each of those cars and do a 30 second assessment and come back to you with our priorities. Don't let me get sucked in. Come and grab me if it looks like I've uh, been, been sucked into doing something like patient care. Um, you update HEMS, you update control with the number of ambulances that we need. And then we'll regroup at this position away from the scene to allow us to share this mental model and come up with the appropriate tasks in the appropriate order that we need to achieve. So that's the stages or things that we consider specifically with regards to startling response, uh, startling surprise and how we can help get ourselves back on track and avoid rushing in uh, with perhaps a compromised cognitive ability. Alex, have you got any more or particular tips about bandwidth in general uh, with regards to this scenario? I'm very aware that this fire officer is very keen to give us a handover. Any, any tips on how we can maximise the information transfer there? Yeah, so in situations like this, there's so much going on and so many distractions that um, just simply receiving the information from the handover can be quite difficult, particularly if it's someone who's trying to impart a lot of information or someone who is being quite um, quite thorough in the information they're giving and perhaps giving you a little bit, a bit of a information overload. So some things that you can do 
perhaps to help with that or, or maybe to slightly remove yourself from the scene to somewhere a little bit quieter, perhaps in the back of the ambulance, um, provided that's not obstructing your uh, your sort of operational overview. Uh, but maybe turning your back to the scene as well so that you don't have those distractions right in front of you in your vision, those those visual and audible distractions as well. And any of those things, really, there's no there's no specific um, guideline that we can really give you because they're so situational. But just it's just having a conscious awareness of the fact that the situation you are in is going to be utilizing your bandwidth. So, so do what you can to to enable yourself to receive to be in a position to receive that information. And do as much as you can external to the scene as well. Because as soon as you get involved, momentum will take over and you will then not be able to excuse yourself from the from the scene to get an overall picture of it again. Um, you'll probably get task focused and sucked in. So do as much as you can in the outer periphery of that scene to really set yourself up well before you commit and barrel on in. So I think if we fast forward a little bit now, we go back to our scenario. The scene's now a bit more developed and the operational commander, the operational officer is present and is taking over the scene command role. A number of double creed ambulances have arrived and you are now able to focus on your patient, the sickest one, who is still physically trapped in the vehicle. So your focus then is on extrication and having an awareness that too much clinical assessment and monitoring in the car can actually result in a patient who is trapped more by us and our timeline than the physical problems of extrication. So you get the patient into the back of the truck and now shut off from the noise and the hustle and bustle of the scene, you can begin to perform a more detailed assessment. You find the patient's tachycardic and hypotensive with chest, pelvic and femur injuries. Now you're about to begin management and there's a knock on the door and you open the door and onto the vehicle steps a member of the critical care team. So I don't know about you, Alex, but I sometimes find when I've been both sides of this situation that sometimes there's that awkward bit of handing over leadership or maintaining control whilst facilitating the additional skills that that individual offers. So in my role now, sometimes it's really difficult to read that room of, does this paramedic that's been doing a really good job, do they want to continue leading it? Or do they want to hand over complete control to me? Do they want a bit of coaching and support uh, because perhaps they're still new or they haven't done this uh, very often? And that can be a difficult assessment to make. Uh, I try to broach it, you know, everyone, everyone's got their own terms that they use. I try to broach it by saying, you know, hi, I'm Josh. Um, what can I do? How can I help you? What do you need me to for? What, what do you need me to do? But sometimes there's that awkward element of, do you want me to take over? Do I need to take over? Whilst also respecting that, you know, this is your job. You've been running it really well up until now. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, it is something that we see in um, not not just in the sense of taking over um, clinical leadership, but also sort of general scene leadership as well. It, it, it generally goes one of two ways, doesn't it? People either don't want to relinquish the position that they're in, uh, or they're so desperate to to relinquish it. And yeah, I, I think a really good approach is to find out actually exactly what are the expectations that people have here. Uh, do do what would you like me to do? Things things look like they're going well. What would you like me to do? Or okay, we are needing to refocus on on our priorities here. Why don't we focus on doing ABC? And it's it's recognizing that that's not a, not necessarily a case of muscling in on a job um, and it's not because you're not trusted to do your job you're not being treated like a child it's freeing up bandwidth and it's freeing up that leadership position whether whether you are in that position or the person who um, has already adopted that position is in it it's it's freeing up that position and um, allowing that degree of situational awareness Sometimes it's useful to just outright say it, isn't it? If you're in a position where you want to pass off control, I think it's completely reasonable to say, you know, I'm a bit maxed out. 
can you can you lead this and we do this all the time at work a little while ago i was at quite a big trauma job and had arrived first on scene and it was pretty manic and i was just about to start managing the airway <clears throat> i was just about to start managing the airway and our second critical care team uh turned up and i actually said well you're in control now you you uh lead this because i need to get task fo- to focused on managing this airway uh, so here's your hand over you're in control now because i'm going to a bit maxed out with this so sometimes we need to have that frank conversation about who's going to do what role and it's absolutely fine for you to continue in the leadership role but you probably shouldn't be managing an airway at that time as well yeah and it's all about communication isn't it and communication is really um really a key factor in in a lot of these human in a lot of these human factor issues isn't it um because there's there's things that we need to do both as communicators and as people who are recipients of that communication so as as the communicator we need to make sure that it's an appropriate time for the communication uh what are the people around us doing is it is it a good time to have their attention or are we going to detract from care by doing that are they ready to receive the information? Uh, and sometimes it may be as simple as actually asking them, are, are you ready? Are you ready to, to have a handover? Keep the information concise. Uh, and that's not just at scene, also in hospital. People have a very limited, probably 30 to 45 seconds um, degree of attention for a handover. And beyond that, if you're, if you're going on too much, you've, you've really started to already lose people. As the communicator, it might be appropriate to confirm receipt of the information, so get them to 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 perhaps say the information back to you, or just check that they have an understanding. Yes, I yes, I heard you. I understand. And if if your communication is going to be out to the wider room, there's a concept called ten seconds in ten minutes, and that's taking ten seconds to talk about. Okay, everyone, we're going to take ten seconds, and we're going to talk about the next ten minutes of care. Get people to stop and listen, otherwise the risk that you have is is announcing things to um a room full of people who are who are not paying attention i think that's really key is making people stop what they're doing that that's important when you're talking to the whole team but also if you're talking to an individual i'm sure people have uh seen the some someone anyone no one story if you ask can someone do x is anyone free to do y then nobody does it so if you're doing direct communication you need to be using names you need to have eye contact with them ideally sometimes it's appropriate particularly if it's a busy scene to have a physical line of contact with them so put their hand put your hand on their shoulder and say you know alex uh i'm giving you task critical information are you ready to receive information and don't just send ensure it's going to be received i think that can also be carried over into our handovers at hospital so when you're taking these patients into a room full of lots of people who are just wanting to jump on this patient yes alex you said you need to keep it concise 30 to 45 seconds is probably as long as you're going to hold their attention But I often start my handovers now by turning to the TTL or the team leader and saying this patient is stable for a hands-off handover because that reinforces that you expect people to not do stuff, not be putting blood pressures on, not be taking your robs off and encourages everybody to listen to you. Yeah, that's a really good tip. I Actually, I like that. I might start using that myself. So I think... The other the other side of this is is being the person who is receiving the information, and there's a couple of little things that we can do here as well. Um, so make sure that you do stop what you're doing, and and ideally make eye contact with the person, um, both for the the non non verbal communication aspect, but also to show them that you are ready to receive information. There's not really very many tasks that are so important that you can't stop. 20 seconds but if if you are in one of those tasks if it is a time critical task then perhaps say hold on to that information for a minute just hold on for one second and then okay go ahead i'm i'm ready to i'm ready to i'm ready to listen now but one thing one caveat i would say to that is if you are a communicator and you see something happening that is a risk that is a danger you need to make that very clear stop 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 something 
you know whatever the problem is so so there are very few tasks that you can't interrupt but if you see something that is potentially going to cause a risk if unless it stops right now you need to be very very clear about that and depending on what it is isn't it it would depend on how you tailor that information so some people talk about cuss words or graduated language as an approach to dealing with somebody who might be making a mistake or a team leader who's making a decision that you think might be wrong. I, I have a variety of excellent cuss words <laughs> for when people yeah nothing that's going to get you struck off and unlike what you might be thinking of alex the c in this acronym stands for concerned so you use graduated language um it, it might be i'm concerned that this might be the wrong option to do or or i'm concerned that we're not doing x if they've not responded to that and most people do but if it's been dismissed uh, or not heard then you'd move on to saying i'm uncomfortable and that that definitely works quite well in my experience. Nobody wants to make anyone uncomfortable. A reasonable person doesn't want to make a member of their team uncomfortable. Uh, so if you're uncomfortable about something, then it normally gets attended to. The next thing would be, I think this might be a safety issue. You use the word safety in there. That often gets people to, to listen in and stop what they're doing. And then the final thing would be to say, I'm scared. You know, I'm scared that we're going to harm the patient or I'm scared that we're doing something dangerous. And that kind of graduated language is is quite a nice way to not go in at 100 miles an hour. You know, oh, I'm scared. This is really unsafe. You're using a pink cannula and I think you should be using a green. Clearly, that would be inappropriate. But it's quite a useful framework for people to communicate worries and bring it up uh, with the team in a safe format and if you're someone if you're someone like me who really doesn't do well with conflict conflict uh, I, i'm not really very good in conflicting scenarios that's quite a useful framework to base your communication on and to stand up for yourself in the name of patient safety okay well i think that's all we've got time for just before we summarize though don't go anywhere if you're listening to us on Spotify, you might notice at the end of this episode, you're going to be asked a couple of questions about whether you enjoyed it, was it useful to your practice, and crucially, what can we do next that would be helpful to you? So we're going to try this new thing uh, on Spotify, this new Q&A session. This is your ability to ensure that you get really useful CPD, even if you're just saying this was along the right lines, keep doing this kind of stuff, or this was really unhelpful, I want you to focus on really clinical things, or if you want to give us even more specific feedback than that, please do. Please uh, do give us that feedback so that you can help us to keep making free, useful CPD for you that are listening. So thank you for doing that. If you're if you're not listening on Spotify, then you know ask yourself why not. Uh, you can still give us feedback. That's available on the website generalbroadcast.org.uk or directly to our email generalbroadcastpodcast at outlook.com. Okay, then let's summarise. We've discussed how human factors are organisational, individual, environmental and job characteristics that influence behaviour in ways that can impact safety. In this episode, we've looked at the surprise and startle response. We've talked about how startle is a sympathetic response from stimuli that activates our freeze or fight and flight response. Surprise is a different response to an unexpected event that may last longer than startle. However, both can impact working memory and affect our ability to critically and logically analyse information, potentially subjecting us to making less safe decisions. We've talked about how we can attempt to overcome this by recognising it in ourselves and taking note of what those physiological responses feel like, taking a second to get over that physiological side and get back in control. We can take a second to consciously observe the environment for that pertinent information and then get the team together to develop a shared mental model. We can create more mental bandwidth by delegating to the team. And we've discussed how leadership and authority gradients can come into play in the work that we do. Often frank discussion around these roles can overcome this. And we've also talked about how we can use cuss words or graduated communication to convey our concerns to seniors in the team. 
finally, we've discussed how communication requires both good behavior on behalf of the communicator and the receiver. We need to be ensuring that it's the right time to send and receive information and ensure that a clear line of communication has been opened, either by using names, by eye contact, or sometimes by using physical connection. But that's all for this month. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next month.